I'd invite you once again to turn with me in the Bible to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 12. And continue our exposition through the book of Judges. Moving on with chapter 12. <coughs> The word of the Lord. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over towards Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon, and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon, and when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim, because they said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim, among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And he said, No. Then they would say to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he would say Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites, and Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel ten years, and Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the country of Zebulun. After him, Abdon the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, died and was buried in Pirithon, in the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. I have always found it interesting that as much as we pretend to distance ourselves from history and the atrocities of history, as much as we like to pretend that the ancient world or mankind in the past is not what mankind is today, I think we are constantly reminded by our own hearts and by the society that we are observing in any given day in this century that people do not change. Governments may change. Cultures may change. The types of weapons may change. The language may change. But the heart remains desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who indeed could know it? We look at a passage like this and we jump to the conclusion by saying, what relevance is this to me? 
you might breeze through a passage like this and say, oh, another passage about violent human beings causing destruction that has nothing to do with my life or my context or my present circumstances. Well, if you think that, you would be wrong. Because remember, everything in the Scripture is meant to, pre- is meant to be preserved by the will of God. And everything in there has a purpose and a reason and teaching. Maybe certain things may not have direct context to everything we deal with, but they have overarching context. And here we see the Israelites, particularly that remain the downfall and the destruction and the hardship of life as we know it. The heart, as I said, is still wicked. And when we see how the scriptures portray that, it enables us to learn of God and to draw closer to Him and away from ourselves and the desires of our own heart. With verse 1, we are introduced once again to the Ephraimites. We saw Gideon deal with the Ephraimites back in chapter 8. Ephraim is a fairly sizable clan. Gilead is not. Now, with Jephthah accomplishing military success by the grace of God, we begin to see that uh, the Ephraimites, who are larger, look on this smaller group and say, how dare they have that victory? How dare they get those accolades? How dare they protect and preserve the land? What you have is a demonstration of Ephraim's pride as glory. We know very well that the scripture teaches that pride leads to destruction or goes before a fall. We know from the scriptures, we know from experience that pride is a very ugly thing that works its way in and seeps in and rots from the inside out. Well, what we're seeing in very plain form is how pride leads to catastrophe once again. The saying is that the prideful man complains of not having enough, but the humble person marvels that he or she has so much. And Ephraim is displaying a sense of evil self-importance because of their pride. The pride of Ephraim is the center of this controversy. We see an illustration of that pride leading to a fall. We see the self-importance of Ephraim leading to a pointless, meaningless conflict. Consider your pride. Consider self-importance in our lives and in our world. What does it ever do for us? When a person is prideful and always feels that they have to be on top and always feels that they have to be heard, that they have to be seen, that they have to get ahead, that they have to get what's coming to them, that person lives a life of constant disappointment. Constant disappointment because their pride is never fulfilled. Even even when you get what you wanted at first, your heart immediately turns to want something more. You are never satisfied, never fulfilled. Constant disappointment. Constant anger. Constant anger because it always seems like somebody else is getting the credit that you should have. There's anger and frustration over that. And then there's constant competition. You've always got to one-up the person around you, the other family, the other church, 
the other business, the other country. You've always got to show off. You're always in competition. There is no rest. There is no peace. There is no satisfaction. There is no security. Evil self-importance means I have to always show myself off. And to live like that is a sad way to live. Who are you? Why are you so important? Where does that self-importance come from? Does it come from God? Does it come from your heart? Does it come from something that is lacking in your life, some hole that needs to be filled? Where does it come from? And who are you that you should be so important? Who is Ephraim? Who is Gilead? And why do you fight? Jephthah asks the question of the Ephraimites, why do you fight against me? Well, that can be asked here. Why such self-importance that leads you to live a life of fighting? Well, that self-importance manifests itself in another way as well. They wanted to be in on the action. They wanted to be in on the glory because they wanted bragging rights. They wanted to share in this victory to build up their own esteem and say, look, we had a hand in protecting the land. We had a hand. in God used us. Isn't that wonderful? Look at me. Well, you have to understand that whenever there is an event that you are part of, whenever there is an opportunity to be used of God, whenever there is something that is done that is essential or or builds up or edifies, bragging rights are not the point. Winning for personal gain or personal affection or personal pride is not the point. The glory of God is the point. And here specifically, the defense of the land and the safety of the people and the prosperity of God's people was the point. Cheating to win is not the point of the exercise. My mother will never miss an opportunity to tell people about The point in my life as a child when I cheated at games in order to win. She will never miss an opportunity to talk about how there were a few instances where, and remember as a child, if I didn't win, I might wipe the board of the pieces or do something outrageous like that. Why? Because out of pride, in simplicity, There was a sense that you wanted to feel like you were ahead, that you had something to boast about. I won the game. I got ahead. I showed you. And the reality is you don't enjoy the game when you look at it that way. That's not the point. The point is, really, pastime in that circumstance. The point in anything is to do a good job to posit, to enjoy what you're doing in the process and to build up and to edify and to glorify God and have some practical good influence around you. When you cheat to get to an end result, or you use the term, the ends justify the means, you're missing the point. The truth of the matter is that your gifts in any situation will bring value anyway. You don't have to brag 
You don't have to shine spotlights on yourself to make sure people understand how gifted you are, to make sure people understand that you're God's gift to a situation. Don't do that. God will do that anyway by his own power. To brag about it means nothing. You also have to remember when it comes to bragging that ultimately nobody really cares. Ultimately, nobody really cares. You live before an almighty God. And you ought to live before that God as if he were the only audience that mattered. We say all the time not to worry about what people say or think. Not to worry about the judgment of people. You live to please God. Do you think that God ever cares about your boasting? About your bragging? No, he doesn't. He doesn't need it. He's unimpressed. He gave you every gift and ability that you have. You may have worked at it, or it may seem that way, but you wouldn't have accomplished anything if God didn't give you the strength and the ability and the giftedness to do it. You're going to brag at your maker? you got to be kidding me. And then you also have to remember that people really aren't impressed either. People are too caught up in their own pride, in their own ways, in their own boasting. You can brag all you want. It's not going to matter. No one cares about your pride or about your bragging. Don't live like they do. Left unchecked, pride and bragging, on an unsanctified plane, a built-up built sense of self-importance that is not met, that is not satisfied, will often lead to stupid, destructive action. And that's what we see here. They go to they go to Jephthah and they say, Why didn't you invite us? Our pride is wounded. How dare you? We will burn your house down with fire. Yeah, that's going to make everything better. That's going to fix the problem. See, we always come down to this attitude of, I'll show them. I'll show them not to mess with me. They'll understand next time to make sure I'm part of all this. They'll understand from this way that they chose the wrong person to ignore. I'll show you. And what, they, what always happens when you have an I'll show you mentality is irreversible damage. A relationship will never be repaired. A trust will never be restored. Friendship is often out of the question. And what you do is you have fueled a fire of stupidity with your own pride. You, he, here, we'll burn down your house with fire. Well, guess what? You have now burned down any opportunity to be mutually beneficial, to glorify your God, and to help other people. You have destroyed the whole point. Jephthah asks the question, I ask it again. Why do you fight? Why do you have to do this? What is accomplished and who is edified? It's stupid and it's destructive. And what this pride leads to is empty, pointless conflict. The tragedy of chapter 12 is that no good comes out of the scenario and God's character does not rule. 
Always remember that with the Lord God there is peace. With love of self, there is war. Love of God, there is peace. With love of self and worship of self, there's war of one kind or another. And here it happens to lead to a very destructive kind. We see again a demonstration of the pride and self-importance of the Ephraimites in this situation, that they have no patience and no reason. Jephthah tries to explain the facts of his decision not to invite them. But the way he does it is not quite so diplomatic as the way Gideon does it. Jephthah doesn't fuel their pride or appease their pride in his explanation the way Gideon does back in chapter 8. He just gives the facts. He says, you weren't around, you didn't come, I had to do this, and I did it. End of story. That's the way it was. But they're not interested in the facts. They're not interested in the truth. And I think we're challenged by this, that they have no patience, no sense of reason, no interest in the facts or the truth, that we consider that if we cannot accept the facts of a situation where we don't benefit, or where we are not essential, or we are not the center of the whole universe of that situation, that we need to take note and consider this picture of anger and destruction. When we are not at the center, and that's the fact of the matter, how do we respond? Can we accept truth? Or do we have to fight against truth to make ourselves the center of the universe? Consider the big picture. Consider the big understanding of who benefits and of who is helped before you consider your own wants. They show no patience, no reason. Let's love the Lord and always show patience and reason. And what do you see also? You see because of this a futile use of time and a futile use of resources. This is a group of people that has to constantly fight against oppressors. We're now 12 chapters into this book, and every scenario we've seen is that they're battling oppressors of one sort or another. But now they're fighting against each other. Why? They have to use their own cleverness, their own resources, their own men, their own food, their own, their own uh, economy. They have to use their own strength, their own mental ability to accomplish what? Essentially, a weaker nation. Essentially, a weaker people group that doesn't love God and love each other, but hates each other and fights against each other and opens themselves all the more to outsiders. Now, if you think that this doesn't go on today, think again. If you think humanity has moved beyond this, think again. That's what I said right at the beginning. This is the same tired old conflict that has gone on from the fall between human and human. Instead of joining together under the banner of Christ to benefit society and to benefit the world, it comes down to me. And we use our time, we use our resources, we use our efforts, we use our intelligence for futile things. Look at all that we have to spend on defense. All that we have to spend on destruction, 
all that we have to spend on things because humanity just can't get along. What a waste of time. Look at all the intelligence that goes into empty and futile things in our life. They have to now discern by using the word shibboleth who is of this tribe and who is of that tribe. They have to use intelligence that could have been used to benefit the country instead to tear each other apart. There are better causes than ones that do not glorify God or build his kingdom. When you are in a situation where you are obsessed with getting ahead, you are wasting your time and your skills on that obsession. Make amends. Make amends or walk away. You have a better purpose, and that purpose is your Lord and His kingdom, to build up, to edify. Because in the end with this conflict, as with every conflict when we are obsessed with ourselves, no one really wins. Ephraim is defeated, sure, but the nation as a whole loses out and is weaker for it. Civil war never brings healing. Now, you can look back at the history of the United States and you can say, wow, for a civil war, we came back together fairly well. But we know very well that we are still feeling the wounds of that war 150 years ago or more. We know that when there is any conflict, it is very hard to get over the destruction and the evil that occurs. And ultimately, no one wins. Let's recognize that. Let's recognize that nobody wins and that our pride and our name-calling and our arguments do not build up our country. If we're fighting against each other, we are weakening ourselves. If you're a Christian, your political memes do not edify. They don't. I'm not bashing your, your convictions. Your convictions are fine. But when you share your convictions in a contentious way, in a way that does, does not model your Savior, you are not edifying. And I challenge you to reconsider how you approach, how you approach situations and scenarios. Don't approach them like wars. Our Lord himself says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Act like him. Speak like him. Model him. Godly love and character will be seen. And if you are criticized for godly love and gentleness of character, so be it. The Lord is on your side. But be strong in him. Be firm in him. Not in getting ahead and not in proving yourself right. Strengthen Christ to not war for self. Instead of the prideful attitude of the Ephraimites, instead of the destruction and the war and the degradation that comes from it, let's consider the heart of a servant. Someone like John the Baptist, who proclaimed the name of the Lord and cried out that he must increase and I must decrease. Boy, if that were our motto, 
how different a culture and society would be. Christ must increase. I must decrease. I must love the other and and consider them more more and consider them better than myself. How different our culture would be. He must increase and I must decrease. It's better to be a name in passing than to have a whole chapter in Scripture or a whole book in Scripture devoted to you if you're a normal human being. When I consider my favorite personalities in the Bible, my thoughts sometimes turn to Elijah, turn to Samuel. But you know, more and more there's something to be said about Enoch. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. End of story. We don't know anything about him. We knew that he knew that he walked with God, and that's what's important. It's not necessary for us to know anything about him. What's important is that God knew him and he knew God. What's important that he, is that he was a man of God. And as we get to the end of chapter twelve, you have Ibzan, Elam, and Abdon. We don't know much about him. God doesn't tell us much. But we do know that God used them. We do know that they were used of God and were of Him. Maybe their maybe their rule was not uh, their government was not great. We're not told. Maybe it was okay. We're not told. Maybe they weren't such wonderful servants of God. We're not told. What we know is that God mentions them, that they were called of God, and that He used them. Now, is that enough for you? Is that enough for your life, that he must increase and you must decrease? Is it enough if nobody knows anything about you, but that you are a servant of God? Is it enough, or does your pride force you to have to have more written for people to remember and understand? We are so consumed with legacy, prideful Humanity thinks that as long as somebody remembers our name or knows our life story, that we have some sense of immortality because of that. Legacy and preserving legacy can motivate to great evil. Preserving legacy can cause someone to do great atrocities for their own advancement and their own legacy. God is not looking for you to build up your own kingdom. You don't need to build a kingdom. You don't need to build a legacy. Are you adding to his legacy? Are you adding to his living legacy? His living kingdom? Are you part of an eternal kingdom that will never pass away, that will never fail? Is he your legacy? Is he your eternity? Is he your life? <laughs> You're part of his living body. What do you care if you remembered? What do you care if there are books written about you? Does it really matter? What are you living for? That's what matters. Who are you living for? Because if you live for the Lord, you don't need legacy. You don't need to impress people. You are one with Almighty God. And what we have is a great sense of the reality that we should preach the gospel, live the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Faith and obedience to the Master, for the Master. Know the love of the Lord. Know that the faith He gives you 
will be a great shield from pride and self-importance. Because by faith, we rest on him for everything, not ourselves. Faith frees you and shields you from pride. And obedience to his law keeps us focused outside of ourselves and not on our own needs and our own cravings. Faithfulness shields us from pride and obedience keeps our eyes and focus off of our pride. Keeps us focused on him and on serving the needs of others. Not so we can brag, not so we can list our involvement, not so we can be like the Pharisee and pray about and pray and thank God about how good we are, how many opportunities he's granted us, or how many mission trips we've been on, or how many orphanages we've painted, or how many people we've won to the Lord, or how many uh, VBSs we've served in, not so we can make a list and display our pride, no, but faithfulness and obedience so that he can increase. My name and my accomplishments and my part in it all can decrease and just blend in to the body of Christ and the eternal kingdom of God that is all handed over to him for his glory and for his eternity. Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Why do you join in in their raging and their plotting of vain things? Consider your life, consider your pride, and ask yourself, why do you fight? Do you fight for the same reason as the Ephraimites? Or do you live like these unknown judges, where it doesn't matter if they get ahead or not, but that God knows them and holds them and appointed them and used them? Consider your life. Submit and lose your life to Christ. Because whoever loses his life will find it. Whoever gives up all for him will gain a hundredfold and more. He must increase. We must decrease. Let's pray. Dear Lord, obliterate our pride. Humble us. Cause us to die to ourselves and submit to you and to give up all for you. May we lose our lives and find them in you. I pray that everyone who hears this message would recognize that they need to live for you and your glory alone. Why do we fight? May we stop fighting. But may we embrace our Savior knowing that he fights for us and goes before us. We love you, Lord. We accept you. We believe on you. And I pray that all of us would commit ourselves to you as you indeed increase in our lives and we ourselves continually decrease. Bless us with this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.